During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on their way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. 
Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Thanks, Hannah. Um, I'm another Tim. There's a few of us around, aren't there? Great. Um, Just before we start looking at this passage from uh, the Scriptures, uh, I want to draw your attention to another advertisement, uh, a quip. You should have got one of these leaflets uh, in your handouts today. Um, Most of you come to uni for three, four, five, six, seven years to equip yourself to do something with the rest of your life. Well, equip is equipping you to do something for Jesus for the rest of your life. Uh, So it's worth investing in that while you're here at uni, while you have the opportunity, while you've got a little bit of flexibility with your time. You can see on the back there's some electives you can do. Um, If you've never done one of these, sharing the gospel is a terrific place to start. Uh, It's held Monday afternoons, four till six plus dinner. If you can't make Mondays, but we can find, or you can find two or three people who want to do the same elective at any other time during the week, We'll run it for you. That's our guarantee. Not quite watertight, but we'll certainly uh, try to do that if we can. So if you're interested, you can go online and register, or just fill this out and hand it in before you leave today. For Mark chapter 8, you've got a passage there. There's an outline on the back of the uh, handout if you find that helpful. It's a really bizarre question, I think. Imagine I walk up to you and say, who do you think I am? You'd be tempted to say, oh, Bart Simpson, probably, or Julius Caesar, or Joan of Arc, or someone ridiculous like that. Like, it's a ridiculous question, isn't it? I'm Tim. That's who I am. Why am I asking you who I am? Yet that's the question Jesus asks his disciples. You see that in verse 29. You, what about you? Who do you say that I am? It is normally bizarre, but there are some times when it is sort of the right question. It's said that Henry VIII, who was the King of England in the 1500s, um, occasionally used to go out of the the palace incognito, dressed as the commoner, because he didn't trust the police. He thought that they were probably being lazy, he wanted to check them out on site. He knew if he came as king, of course they'd be up to their best behaviour. So he used to go out incognito. It backfired one day, one of them tried to arrest him. And at that point, it would have been the right question, wouldn't it? Who do you think I am? I'm the king. What are you doing arresting me? That is, when it's someone crucial and important, yet travelling incognito, then it's the right question. There's an upmarket jewellery store in Sydney. uh, And one morning, a guy came in uh, and looked through some of the the jewellery in the store pretty expensive sort of stuff and decided on a purchase and took it to the salesperson to buy it. She was having a bit of trouble though processing his payment on the computer. 
And uh, he leaned over after five minutes or so and said, can I help? Uh, and she said, do you know anything about computers? He said, a bit. And he sort of helped her out and managed to go through with the purchase. And when she looked at the sales docket with the credit card, she noticed the guy's name was Mr Bill Gates. That would have been the right question to ask at that point, wouldn't it? Who do you think I am? When he went to fix her computer. But for Jesus to ask it, it must mean that he is conscious of being more than just Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the carpenter, but travelling incognito. And I want you to notice how personal the question is. It's not, who am I, as if he's got an identity crisis. It's, who do you think I am? The focus actually goes on to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Now, that's a question, I think, that I want to put before all of us. Jesus asked it then of his disciples. I want to ask you who you think Jesus is. What's your answer? What conclusions have you come to so far from what you know about him? Maybe you've never asked the question before. But Jesus sort of puts it in their lap and says, well, who do you think I am? And it's clear that many people in Jesus' time, like today, are having a stab at who they think Jesus is. Some of them back then think that he's John the Baptist. Some think he's a prophet from God. Uh, we're going to come to some others later. Now, all the way through Mark's Gospel so far, that's the question Mark has want, wanted you and me to be asking by the extraordinary things that he recounts about Jesus, the things Jesus has been saying and doing. If you go back to chapter 1, if you've been with us last semester, you'll remember some of the things. If not, let me just tell you quickly. In chapter 1, Jesus goes into a synagogue which is sort of like their church, and he has a chance to preach, and he starts preaching, and people are stunned, because he preaches like somebody who actually knows what he's talking about. He doesn't quote other authorities, he just tells you what he knows is true. Then there's a guy there, possessed by an evil spirit, he's crazy, he's shouting out, and Jesus says to the spirit, come on, get out. And it does. And the guy is left calm. And people say, man, who is this? He can even tell spirits to get out. And they go, yes, sir. Like, what sort of man does that? Later in, the, in chapter 2, uh, Jesus is in a, a house and a guy, well, some friends bring a guy who's paralysed. They let him down through the roof. They dig a hole in the roof. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Some people don't like Jesus saying that. They say only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says to them, well, listen, I'll show you that I've got the authority to forgive sins. Come on, get up and walk out. In front of them all, this guy who's paralysed, presumably a paraplegic, is able to get up and immediately carry his bed out in front of everybody. And people go home saying, we've never seen anything like this. I haven't either. Who is this man who can do such things? In chapter 2, Jesus is having a dispute about the Sabbath, the holy day that God gave Israel. And he ends up saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You go, What? I mean, that's God's law, isn't it? Who's the only one who can give the law about the Sabbath? Who's the only one who can modify or change it? Only God, surely. And Jesus says, yep, that's me. In chapter 4, he's out on a lake with his disciples and a storm brews up, a, a pretty big storm. The disciples think, some of them professional fishermen, this is their last journey ever, they're going to drown. Jesus is asleep. Can you believe it? They wake him up. Say, don't you care if we perish? Jesus sort of stands up and, you know what it's like when you, you first wake up? You just do what's instinctive, don't you? And Jesus does what's instinctive. He says to the wind and the wave, shut up, come on, calm down. And they do. 
They say, who is it who can command even the wind and the waves? Who can tell creation what to do? I've never even tried it because I know I can't pull it off. Jesus does it instinctively and it obeys. All these things are raising the question, who is Jesus? Chapter 6, he's out, lonely place with huge crowds around him. And we're told he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. He realises that they're lost, they don't know what they're doing in life and they're hungry and everything else. And instead of saying, I wonder who can do something about this, he decides to do it. He says, I'll be your shepherd. I'll teach you. I'll feed you. And this is far more than an ordinary bloke. Everything he does cries out for an explanation. Jesus of Nazareth just doesn't cut it as an explanation. Who is this guy? But what Jesus experiences in this chapter 8 is blindness everywhere. Did you notice that as we read it through? There's the really obvious one. There's a blind man that Jesus heals. But there's the Pharisees as well. They, they seem pretty blind. In verse 11 to 13, they come and ask for a sign from Jesus. They say, come on, Jesus, do something supernatural. Do something spectacular to prove that you're really from God. Now, there's a scepticism to that that's sort of right, but this goes beyond that normal, healthy scepticism. There's something more sinister here. See, they say to Jesus, unless you do a sign for us here now, we won't believe. Unless you jump when we snap our fingers... We're not going to believe. Jesus says, no, won't do it. But you see the irony, don't you? What's Jesus just done? <laughs> An incredible sign. He's fed 4,000 people with seven little loaves of bread and a couple of fish till they're all satisfied and they've collected seven basketfuls of leftover pieces. Like if that isn't a sign, what is? But they can't see it. Well, they refuse to open their eyes to see They sort of shut their eyes and say, show us. Jesus says, well, open your eyes and you'll see. And people today still do the same thing. They often say, if God does a miracle for me right here and now, I'll believe. I actually think it's rubbish. I don't think you will believe, actually. Very unlikely, given the attitude that you might come with. Jesus has done plenty. Go and look. As the adage goes, there's none so blind as those who refuse to see. But the disciples of Jesus, who are actually what this chapter is mainly about, they're a bit different to the Pharisees, but they're blind. They see, but they don't see. It's a different sort of blindness. In verse 15, Jesus warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Yeast is what you put into bread to make it all rise. It it sort of infects every corner of the the batch of dough. It worms its way in there like like a virus and infects everything. And he warns them about having the same sort of attitude that the Pharisees have. This scepticism, this obstinate unwillingness to look, a blindness that could develop into full-blown refusal to see. Because what have they just seen? Well, they've seen Jesus feed the crowds. Now, as we read chapter 8, verses 1 to 10, if you were with us last semester, I hope you had a sense of sort of deja vu. We've heard this before, haven't we? And we have back in chapter 6, only a couple of chapters before, and it happened for us maybe two months ago, three months ago. Probably happened about the same distance apart for the disciples as well. 
And I'm just going to recount chapter 6. And as I do it, I want you to look at chapter 8, 1 to 10 and see if you see any echoes uh, in, this, in chapter 8. See, back in chapter 6, Jesus is out in the wilderness places, no shops or anything out or anything else like that. And he has compassion on the crowds, begins to teach them. Later in the day, stomachs are starting to grumble. People are needing food. And the disciples come and say, Jesus, you better send them off home, off to the villages, otherwise they'll starve to death out here. And Jesus said to them, you feed them. They say, what? You're joking, we can't feed them. Jesus says, how much food have you got? And they scratch around a bit, they come up with five little bread rolls and a couple of fish. Jesus says, have the crowds all sit down in groups of fifties and hundreds. So the disciples go and they put them all into the groups and as they do it, presumably they count how many people there, there are there and there's over 5,000. And then he breaks, gives thanks to God and breaks the bread and the five little bread rolls and gives it to the disciples and they distribute it. They keep giving it out and giving it out to over 5,000 people. Afterwards he sends them to collect up all the leftovers. And they discover that everyone is satisfied. They don't want to eat any more. They've had enough and they get 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Like far more than they started with, and, and 5,000 people eat a lot of food. Now, did you hear the echoes in chapter 8? It's a very similar story, isn't it? Jesus points out that they've sort of, the crowd has reached a point of no return. Verse 3 If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciple answered, But where in this remote place can we get enough food to feed them? Now, why didn't they say to Jesus, Jesus, we know you can do this, you feed them. Did they forget about what happened in chapter 6? <laughs> well, Jesus then asked them the question, exactly the same question he asked in chapter 6. How many loaves do you have? And they have to go and look. And they scratch around and this time they come up with seven. And again, he uses the disciples to distribute the, the food, the meagre little rations, to all the people. Again, they have a chance to count how many. Again, they collect up the leftovers. And this time, there's seven basketfuls left over. And more than 4,000 people have eaten their full, as much as they wanted. Deja vu, it's the same thing over again, isn't it? What's going on? Did Mark forget to tell us that he's already told us this story? And then sort of got confused about the numbers? No, there were two feedings. And in the second feeding, Jesus replays it again for his disciples because he wants them to see. He wants them to really see from the inside what's going on. They saw it before, but they didn't see. He shows them again and they see, but they still don't see. They don't see the significance of what Jesus is doing. They just see what happens. It's Jesus leading up to the question he wants to put to them. Who do you say that I am? They see it, but they just don't get it. And that's why he warns them in verse 15 about the yeast. <laughs> what's about the yeast and what's their response? Did we not bring lunch with us today? <laughs> what's going on? They, they don't get it again. It's sort of like they and Jesus are on different planes, different planets. They're blind and they can't see. And Jesus takes them back to the two feedings. Verse 18... Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces do you pick up? Twelve, they said. They remember the details. They remember the experience. And the 4,000 and the seven loaves? 
Seven basketfuls. 100%. Passed the exam. Completely. Flying colours. HD. But they're blind. They still don't see. I mean, you almost want to shake them, don't you, and say, come on, guys. Don't you realise what's going on? They're blind. They're deaf. Remember at the end of dinner one night at home, uh, with dirty dishes piled up and saucepans still on top of the stove, I got up and started to walk towards the study with my mind on people I was going to contact and stuff like that. And Rosemary said to me, Tim, can't you see the dirty dishes? I said, yes, I can see them. (laughs) They were obvious. I I could see, but I was oblivious to what she was saying to me. I didn't see the significance. Being subtle with me doesn't work. She said, Tim, did you dirty any of those dishes? And I got it. (laughs) I realised what she was trying to say. Yes, washing up needs doing. It clicked. You see... When she said to me, can't you see the dirty dishes? And I kept walking. My blindness was moving more towards obstinance, wasn't it? A deliberate refusal to see. Now, I'm glad she said something else, because that snapped me out of my deliberate refusal to see. And the disciples' blindness is like that. It's moving beyond naive obliviousness to a deliberate hard-heartedness. An un, a, 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 a unwillingness to see. Now you may be like that, familiar with what Jesus did. It's fun, it's cool, it's interesting stories, but oblivious to its significance. Maybe familiarity has just brought that sort of contempt, that, that you, you know it, but it just easily slides away, because there's other things to do with my time. I, I couldn't be bothered really with Jesus. And that moves slowly into suppressing the truth, the refusal to consider the significance of Jesus and what he did. And then Mark recounts the story of Jesus healing a blind man. A man who can't see. His friends want him to see, they bring him to Jesus. Jesus takes him outside the village, off on his own, out of the public eye, to heal him. But it's a really strange healing, isn't it? Did you notice that? It's sort of like Jesus has two goes to heal him. First go, doesn't quite work. Can you see? And and he says, well, sort of. Now, there's light hitting my eyeballs, but I see people, but they look like trees walking around. It's all blurry. It's all out of focus. He can't really see clearly yet. And so Jesus has another go. And this time, it works fully, and he can see clearly. Now, it's the only time in all of the, the accounts we have of Jesus and his healings that it takes more than once to do it. The paralysed man who comes down through the roof, he just says, get up and walk, and immediately the guy is healed, not just of his paralysis, but of his muscle atrophy and everything else that that was part of paralysis. He's got the strength to get up and carry his mat home immediately. Jairus' daughter, Jesus just takes this 12-year-old corpse by the hand and says, little girl, wake up, get up. And immediately she's fully alive, not half alive, fully alive. What's going on here? Why can't Jesus do it in one fell swoop? Well, I'm not sure, actually. But there's certainly some clues as to why Mark includes it at this point in his story of Jesus. Because the experience of this blind man mirrors the experience of the disciples. They start off blind, but by the end of the chapter, they can sort of half see. It's like trees walking around. They start off blind. They they can't see, and they can't see that they can't see. 
And so Jesus takes them away from the public eye. It's time to heal them of their blindness. And in that context, he raises the question. Step out. He says to them, who do you say that I am? Who do you reckon I am? And the answer that comes back is not, oh, Jesus, the carpenter. Peter gets it. Something clicks for Peter. And he says, I know. Now I know. You're the Messiah. All those things they'd seen so far, all the things they'd seen up close, the feedings, the forgiveness, the healings, the exorcisms, now finally it's clicked for Peter. I I know who you are. You're the Messiah. Now, Messiah for us is sort of, it's a bit of, I don't know, technical language. It may not work for you as a word. Um, It may help to know that Messiah is the Hebrew version of the word that's translated Christ in the New Testament. It literally means someone who's anointed. I guess like we use the the title, the crown. We've been watching that on TV. The crown is a person, a person who's been crowned, who wears a crown, which is, she's queen, isn't she? Queen Elizabeth, Lizzie, to her friends. That is, it's a title. But it's a word that does have a little bit of meaning in our popular culture. It's sort of right. See, there are some people starting to think at the moment that the dockers need a messiah. (laughs) I I, I won't join the club that's saying that, but there's a lot of people saying that because they're down the bottom of the table. They got flogged on Sunday again. And, And when you say they need a messiah, I think you know what I mean by that, don't you? They need someone to save them. Someone who will lead them into a new era, a better era, a winning era. So a messiah is always a person who's going to come and save you from some predicament by leading you, by being the person in charge, the boss, in order to take you to freedom, to liberty, to salvation. So it's those two ideas, rescue by leading. But notice... Peter just doesn't, say, doesn't just say you're a Messiah. He says you're the Messiah. Which means there's one he's got in mind, a particular Messiah. Not for the dockers, but for the world. So for more than a thousand years before this point, God had been promising that one day he would step into history and do something about the mess of this world. One day he would send a Messiah, his Messiah, a king descended from King David, the one who had set to right everything that's wrong in the world. And it's the world. It's not just a local, tribal, temporary Messiah, but wider, bigger, a Messiah over everything, a permanent Messiah. Psalm 2, if you want to look it up in the Old Testament, is one of the places where this Messiah is described. And God says to his Messiah, you're my son, and I give you all the nations of the world. If anybody rebels against your rule, you'll crush them to pieces like a bit of, of pottery, because I want you to own everything. I want you to have the allegiance of every person in this planet, in this universe. But a Messiah also assumed this world in a mess, that evil has spread its tentacles into every nook and cranny of, of our culture and society and lives, from international politics to the privacy of our own hearts. And we can't get out of that mess on our own, because we're part of the problem. We need a Messiah. And God kept saying through the Old Testament, one day, one day, one day, it'll come. The one is coming. And Peter finally says, Jesus, you're the one. You're the Messiah. 
that stunning realisation that Jesus is not just an outstanding person, but the saviour of humanity sent by God himself. The king and leader claiming allegiance of every person on the planet. And the disciples, they've spent a couple of years at this point, walking, talking, chatting, sleeping out in the open with him. But only now are their eyes opened. What before has seemed maybe like party tricks for them. Well, they're actually the things you'd expect a Messiah to be doing. Healing people who are sick, feeding people who are hungry, forgiving people who are evil, raising from the dead those who've died, teaching the truth of God and his world. In fact, only the Messiah is capable of doing that sort of thing, to having this sort of authority over evil. And it's clearly the right answer. Jesus accepts it, tells them to shush up about it for the moment, but it's right. They've cottoned on. But then in verse 31, things change. Do you notice the change? He then began, from that time on, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. In Mark's Gospel, up to this point, the question that just keeps being raised all the time is, who is Jesus? But now it changes. Now they've worked out who Jesus is. Now they've started to see clearly the agenda changes. It's, what has Jesus come to do? He says, I've come to be rejected and die and rise again. That's what he's come to do. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Notice how incongruous that is. He's just said, you're the Messiah, you're God's king, you're the leader, we'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, well, this is where I'm going. And Peter says, I don't want to go there. Like, (laughs) something doesn't compute, does it? To tell Jesus off at this point. He sees, but he doesn't see clearly. It's like trees walking. He's got it, but he hasn't got it. He's only half healed of his blindness. It's light, but everything is still blurry. And in verses 34 to 38, Jesus spells out the implications. When the Messiah comes, see if the dockers get a Messiah, if Ross Lyons gets booted out and they get a new whatever, there's a new regime, a new strategy, a new game plan, and every player and supporter has got to go with that, no matter what the cost, and follow the Messiah. Jesus says, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross to save the world. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, if he's our Messiah, then it's the same game plan for us. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. Now, that doesn't sound real attractive, does it? Not to me. Deny myself, say no to me. It assumes that all of us naturally just live for ourselves. That's how we're born, that's how we live, that's what everyone's told us to do. You're the most important in the world, important person in the world. Just do what's good for you. Jesus says no. Deny yourself. Say no to your own ambition. Instead, live for me and the gospel. Take up your cross. Be prepared to die. Now Jesus knows we'll think it's a dumb idea, so he tries to persuade us in verses 35 uh, to 38. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That is, look to the consequences of what you do. You try and save your life, try and say, no, it's my life, I'm unwilling to deny myself, I've got to look after myself, no one else is going to. Then in the end you'll lose your life for eternity. And he says, what good is it if you gain the whole world, if you're a Bill Gates, 
But you only have it for 60 years and then for eternity you've got nothing. You're destroyed. That's a pretty bad bargain, isn't it? A, a, a foolish one, if Jesus really is the Messiah. So back to our original question. Who do you say Jesus is? There's lots of answers floating around the world today. Some say he's a myth. Never really existed. It's just legends from the ancient world. But can I impress on you that in the academic world of ancient history, there's no doubts about Jesus' existence whatsoever. He's left too big a footprint in history. It looks a bit like the Pharisees, doesn't it? A deliberate blindness. I'm going to keep my eyes shut because I don't want to see. Others say, well, maybe he's a good man, a great teacher, a prophet of God. But Jesus is claiming to be much more than those, demonstrating that he's the Messiah, God's King, God's Son, claiming allegiance of every person on planet Earth, God's Saviour, who alone can rescue you from eternal destruction. See, somebody who says something like verse 35 is either right or he's wrong. If he's wrong, he's not a good teacher, he's not a moral person, he's an evil person. This is how C.S. Lewis put it, the uh, Narnia guy. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open. He didn't intend to. I think that's right, isn't it? Some people say it as the trilemma. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. You've seen something of what Jesus has done. He puts the question to you and to me, who do you say that I am? Because your answer isn't just an academic answer. If you answer, I believe he's the Lord, I believe he's the Messiah, but he doesn't change anything in us, we're still sort of blind, aren't we? We're like the disciples. Can you see clearly? If not, open your eyes. Thank you.